Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Natalie Freeman. Today, we're so excited to welcome Catherine Coles to read from her new book, The Stranger I Become, on walking, looking, and writing, and to join me in conversation. Before I introduce her, I wanted to remind you that Skylight Books is open for in-store browsing. Our hours are 11 to 7 on weekdays and 10 to 8 on weekends. We ask that you continue to be kind and respectful to our booksellers and your fellow shoppers when you visit us. We are also offering online ordering through our beautiful, newly designed website, which you can find at www.skylightbooks.com. And now to introduce you to Catherine. Catherine Coles is the author of two novels, seven collections of poems, and the memoir Look Both Ways, the recipient of grants from the NEA and the NEH and the Guggenheim Foundation. She has served as Poet Laureate of Utah and was inaugural director of the Poetry Foundation's Harriet Monroe Poetry Institute. She is a distinguished professor of English at the University of Utah. Welcome, Catherine. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thank you, Nat. It's so wonderful to be here. And it's always great to hear that there's in-person bookstore shopping. (laughs) We are very excited to have people back as well. And I was hoping we could start and have you read us a little something from the book. Um, Sure. This is just a little tiny piece uh, from the essay called Reflect, which of course deals with mirrors and thinking and all of the things that you would imagine. But it's about a kind of photographic project that I embarked on and I should be very careful to note that I'm not a photographer. So this was completely an accidental project that involved my using my phone to take notes, visual notes about things and then discovering that my face kept appearing one way and another in these notes. Now, when I photograph objects in museums and galleries, I no longer dodge and weave, trying to get myself out of the picture. I welcome my reflection or shadow, the way I welcome charismatic birds or light on a London facade at night as other transitory subject to fleeting captures. I am everywhere, always intruding, always about to slip away reflected in Jane Austen's polished grave marker and in the mirror set to show the ceiling of a chapel, in the sculpture garden at the Hirschhorn where images of running children fly through mine. I walk out of a suit of armor in the window of a pricey London gallery. 
I will never get closer than this. Facebook learns to know me by reflection and files my shots both under your photos, by which it means those I've taken, and photos of you, by which it means images of me. Thank you for that. And I am so excited you chose that piece because it had two, two things I wanted to talk to you about in it. One, which I'll circle back to, but the first one, because you mentioned Jane Austen and you mentioned so many of your influences uh, in this book. And as a poet, um, poetry is so, uh, so well known in so many ways. When we think of poets, we think of a handful of poets or we think of the greats or the people we know. And I wanted to talk to you about if you could share a little bit about how your how your style came to sort of be your own and how you figured out your sense of self within poetry and poetics, which you talk about in the book, how you got there um, with so many great examples and how it feels to kind of find that road without emulating others in certain ways or too much. Yeah, and I, th I think um, this is a great place to start because uh, you always begin by emulating others, right? This is how you learn your craft. You're reading along and you think to yourself, oh my goodness, how does that poet do that? <laughs> I wanna figure that out myself. And then you learn how to do that or you learn how to do something like that. And you put that tool, it's like you've acquired a new wrench or screwdriver or something, right? And you stick that in your toolbox and you might even, especially as a young poet, you might wear it out for a while. Right? Yeah. You might do it a little bit too much um, over and over again. Uh, and then at some point that becomes just part of who you are as a poet uh, as well. And so one of the things that happens is you begin to join into the conversation of your particular poetic moment. A lot of this reading will be of contemporary poets because that's the conversation, right? That as a young poet, you're really eager to join and you're sort of, you're copying and you're adopting. Uh, and one of the things that happens that makes you individual as a poet is that the combination of influences that you put together is gonna to be different from the combination of any other set of influences. So that's number one. And then number two is, that as you learn these specific elements of craft, kind of like how to do it, how to make a poem, uh, and you gather these different tools to get yourself out of trouble, right? In a, in a poem, which happens all the time, the, the craft um, that you've used for a long time becomes invisible to you. And you begin to kind of subsume it into that larger voice and into a kind of freedom in your use of those particular tools. And I don't know if you got this from the book, but I'm kind of all about freedom um, in, a, in a lot of <laughs> Yes, so, very much. Yeah, so there's a sense in which you need to make your, and I, I talk about this really explicitly in some places, you need to make yourself captive to your place and time in literature. And then the next step, and you're fortunate to be able to make it, is that then you need to make yourself free um, with, within your own place and time as well. Well, and on, on that note about freedom, poetry is so stylized. This is not a book of poems, this is a book of essays, yet it still has such a, a poetic lyricism to it, a poetic feeling. It feels 
structured yet free at the same time. And so if you could talk a little bit about just in general within the book, but in general, the, the, the methods in which you infuse poetry and poetics into other forms of storytelling or in your life in general, which is what this book is about is infusing those poetics into life and correlating those experiences, but just how you balance the structure of what we consider poetry, how we can feel that maybe sometimes it's rigid or it has to abide by certain things um, and how you balance those two. Yeah, and you know, of course, when I talk about freedom in poetry, I'm talking about freedom within constraint, but I'm also really talking about pushing against constraint or seeing what you can get away with, right? Mm -hmm. That constraint that you that you've taken on. And this book, in a sense, came from that same kind of impulse because every one of these essays was, in a in a way, assigned to me. In that mm -hmm. somebody came to me and said, "Would you write us an essay, you know, about X?" And it used to be uh, that what people expected from me was a, more a, a kind of a kind of scholarly essay mm -hmm. about, about creativity or about this poet or about that poet or um, about emotion and poetry or whatever. And I capitulated right to those constraints that I was supposed to talk about poetry in a kind of scholarly way. And then the moment came when I just thought, you know, I'm not really that interested in doing that anymore. What I'm more interested in is enacting the emotional and um, and thinking role that poetry plays in my life as I live it every day. And so I started to come back to the people and say, and say, I'll be happy to write to you, uh, write for you about Keats, or I'll be happy to write for you about reflection or art or whatever. But uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write a lyric essay in which yeah. poetic technique comes into play and in which the ultimate goal is not sort of didactically educating my reader about my wisdom and poetry, but, it, but is about is much closer to poetry in that I'm trying to create an experiential space for the reader who can then um, who can then walk into that looking for emotion, looking for experience, looking for feeling um, out of that. And that that answer kind of leads me or helped me segue into one of these other pieces I wanted to talk to you about, which I, the book just brought up so many, um, just like what you said, emotions, feelings, experiences that I wanted to interrogate more or was like, okay, let me now look at this thing that I'd been uh, thinking about through a different lens or through a different space or something along those lines. And so something that I had pulled out was a question you asked, um, or it may have been a, a quote from someone else that you used, but you can remind me, uh, is can you define the other for your own uses without changing it? Right. Um, and I feel like there's a little bit of a segue there in terms of creating experiences for people, um, creating space, um, without, and then people coming into it and feeling that they can define it or finding their own ways to define it without changing the atomical structure of it in some way, um, which I just thought was really interesting. And it made me, it made me sit back and think, okay, <laughs> what experiences or, or interactions or spaces in my life have I changed or tried to change 
for my own use without letting them exist on their own. Um, so I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit about that. Yeah, and that, I think that's actually something I said my own self um, because it's a constant question. Question: If you're somebody who deals in whose material is the matter of your own real life, right? You're always transgressing mm-hmm. onto somebody. And in this book, there are a lot of real people, right? And some of them are named, and some of them aren't named. So, example, my for example, my canny friend mm-hmm. is. There lives throughout this book and my oldest friend lives throughout this book and they're not named in the book but it's hard for example to talk about a partner or a husband a spouse um without people being very clear about who that person <laughs> yeah. is right or your parents or your siblings etc cetera, etc cetera. and so you know you you're constantly up against this ethical conundrum which is your first responsibility or my first responsibility is actually to that experience of the reader Mm -hmm. which means to the work of art that I'm creating that gives the reader that space to come in and do something. And yet my very close to that is my responsibility to these people I'm representing and who I love and whose privacy, quite frankly, I'm completely um, messing around with. Um, And uh, my, my own family and friends have been really very good about this. But when, for example, Chris, my, husband reads my work he certainly recognizes himself in that but he also knows and I know too that it's not the whole person right you I can't get all of him with all of his complexity and nuance into an essay any more than I can get all of myself right all of my complexity and nuance into the essay and I'm fortunate that he understands that the essay isn't actually about him or even really about me that the point of the essay is not for me to express myself or tell the reader about me. The point is really about creating that place, right, for the the reader. Um, And that makes it sound very generous. It's also a very selfish thing because writing is an incredibly pleasurable thing for me. (laughs) It's not not all that generous. It's not all all that selfless. Um, It's a very selfish act to wanna create a work of art that succeeds. But for me, success means in a sense, detaching it from any insistence on what my own personal reality might be once I've represented what I want to represent. So I wanted to talk to you about distraction, which is one of the first uh, the first essays in the book towards the beginning. But I love the way that you explored distraction because so often as you know, we consider it a a lack or an absence of attention. Um, And when people tell you that you're distracted there, sometimes you can equate this sense of shame with it of I, there's something that I am not doing or I am not fulfilling some sort of obligation. And you turned that on its head a little bit to say that a distraction may not be a lack of something, but you in the example you noted you just said you were paying attention to something else not that thing you were still paying attention just not to the thing that someone else was asking you to pay attention to um so I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about that especially in this world that we live in that is full of what people just call distractions um and the idea I it was a fun thought to have of 
people not walking around distracted, but to imagine a world of people walking around paying attention, maybe not necessarily to the thing that someone wanted them to be paying attention to, but they were still being active in their their own existence there and doing something rather than having a uh, sort of a, a break in the, the time or the space as people might look at it. That's what, again, one of those essays where somebody asked me, right, to address a certain topic. And in fact, I'd love that you got this because the topic I was asked to address was attention. Mm-hmm. Um, with the, the sort of weight on the idea that attention itself is inherently the highest value. And it's not that I'm disagreeing with that. It's again, that I'm making, I guess, the argument for freedom, Mm -hmm. right? Um, That the question is who gets to define. um, And what we should be paying attention to. What attention is. And so the the kind of central story of this um, is about my wonderful father who quite sadly passed away just over a year ago, but um, he really wanted me to learn how to play tennis because that was what my family did. Um, And I was just an abject failure (laughs) at tennis. (laughs) And I was, you know, and, and I say in the essay that the voice sort of resounding in my youth is, can I swear on this? Yes. Um, Go for it. (laughs) Keep your eye on the ball, goddammit, Catherine Amanda was was this refrain of those tennis lessons. And I just couldn't figure out because I was at you know athletic, I was pretty good at stuff that didn't involve watching balls, right, et cetera, et cetera. I couldn't figure out what the problem was. And I was literally 30 years old and trying one last time to play tennis with my uh, the man who would become my spouse. And um I suddenly realized that my dad meant that I had to watch the ball all the time, not just when it had crossed the net and was in my side of the court. And so what I was doing was I'd hit the ball and then I kind of look around and I would notice my surroundings and maybe I'd be writing a story in my head. Or, <laughs> you know, so I was always paying attention and I just was not paying attention to that that object. And the moment that I realized that what I had to do to be a good tennis player was spend, you know, whatever it was, two hours doing nothing but watching a ball, I was able to completely let go of any desire to, yeah. right, to master that game because I knew that um, I just wasn't interested enough right in hitting in the ball uh, as a, a thing um to do that and so i th- i think these days you know and of course the people who were putting together the attention conference were you know seriously into meditation etc which is something that that i've dabbled in myself um but the question that that real question for me about what attention is and what it means um is quite crucial to the creative process and to the and to the idea of flow or to entering into um, the idea of making something. And for example, when I'm making a poem, I'm paying total attention to the poem, but not necessarily to this, and this has to goes back to the idea of letting go of craft, right? Not necessarily to the thing that people might think that I'm paying attention to. I'm much more, I think a phrase that comes from my friend, Michael Souter, um, is a frolic and a detour. I'm much Mm -hmm. more likely, right, to be attending to sort of the the path I don't know, 
than to the path I do now. And then I wanted to come back to uh, the essay that you read for um, that you read for us from <laughs> in the beginning, um, talking about uh, one uh, sort of photo essay project you were working on, where you started to let yourself essentially take up space in the photos that you were taking, um, which I thought was so interesting because one, it was about taking up space and allowing yourself to take up space, which is something I think, at least I personally and a lot of people that I know, it's something that we struggle with in the world, allowing ourselves to exist and not making ourselves small. Mm -hmm. um, but to, to put that idea so, uh, so blatantly inside a frame, mm -hmm. so, so to speak, uh, I thought was interesting because that's something always, if my, my finger is over the lens a little bit, I have to retake the picture or try to remove it because it's in the way then, mm -hmm. um, or always removing the shadow, turning around because the light is wrong or I'm intruding on this space I'm trying to capture. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about taking up space um, and how how you kind of feel about that topic and how you work within it and bring it into your writing. Oh, that's, that's really just such an interesting question because um, so much of what we do in our lives, right, is about navigating um, what space we have a right to Mm -hmm. For example, um, and I think especially over the last year, and of course we've just passed the anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, which brought, catapulted into the foreground for so many people who have assumed their right, right, to take mm -hmm. up space. Um, the question of who really is entitled to space and who really isn't. And the question of who's entitled to life and who, and who isn't is the kind of ultimate um, extent of, of that question. But I think that as a woman who, and I'm, a, I'm about to be 62, and I've had a very, very long, I taught my first college class when I was 20. So I've had a very, very long um, training and career in, uh, how to take up or how to use or how to be entitled to certain kinds of spaces, for example, in the workplace. And I started all of this at a time when it was not assumed that a woman, and especially a young woman, had the same entitlement to those kinds of spaces as, for example, even a young man, but uh, a man of any, of any flavor. And um, so figuring out how and, and I try to work with my students on this too, even my undergraduates, right? Thinking about how you're, you as a human being are entitled to certain things, right? And to take up a certain amount of space. But beyond that, how is it that you can not just demand it, but actually earn, right? The right to take up other kinds of spaces. And then the other question is, how is it that you learn as somebody who comes with certain kinds of privileges already attached to you? So my gender um, is, a, is a mark against me, but my whiteness is a mark for me, right? In terms of privilege, et cetera. How do you use 
um, once you have earned or been given the right to inhabit certain spaces, how do you use your power within those spaces to make space or, or help other people come into their spaces? And that's really one of the things that I'm very committed to working with my students on, right? As young people, and I, I see that you're a, a much younger woman, <laughs> but this question of, you know, how do I, um, without necessarily throwing my elbows around too much, and I'm not necessarily opposed to a little elbow throwing, you know, where we need it, <laughs> yeah, we need it where, where it's warranted. But how do I um, walk, even just walk into a room with the kind of confidence, or stand up in front of a room with the kind of confidence that we need? And I'm going to tell you a quick story. One of my favorite moments from teaching. I have been teaching a literature. Um, in the business school for business school students. And it was all about, um, you know, it, it was all about who is entitled to certain kinds of spheres of in, influence, et cetera, within literature. And I was in a big lecture hall and I'm focused down at, at the bottom and there were 75 students in the class. And near, very near the end of class, this, um, you know, very tall undergraduate who'd been sitting in the back came sort of loping down to ask me a question. And he stopped a few feet away from me and he looked down at me because I'm a very, I'm a very small person. I'm a, like five foot three and small. And uh, he said, oh my God, all semester long, I've thought you were really tall. <laughs> right, and I think that that just is a matter of how one learns to carry oneself, right, going mm -hmm. forward. And I just said, "Oh, don't worry, I'm very tall on the inside." <laughs> um, you know, so so that's about the. There's this question of how. Well, how do you entitle yourself to tell people, "I'll write this essay for you, but it's not going to be the kind of essay you want," right? Mm -hmm. Take it or leave it. Um, that's a way of taking up space as well. And then a little a little along this note, but on a, a little bit of a different path, I, I wanted to kind of close out our conversation talking about um, time, I guess, uh, and, and finding ways to accept time and to be in the present. And I'm thinking specifically about um, a line towards the end of the book where you said the world that I construct from observation and memory and carry inside me dies when I do. And I think that I've been engaging with and reading a lot of things about death and we've experienced so much collective death um, recently. And I think that when I read that, it was just sort of a, it was a little bit of like, uh, it felt like an affirmation of sorts, um, but, and I feel like the word brave can be thrown around a lot, but it, it felt like a, a sense of personal bravery that if I were to have said that, I felt like it would have been something I attributed to being brave and just accepting time. We always feel like we're running out of it. Um, we always feel like there's not enough of it or when we're bored that there's too much of it. But the subtitle of your book, Walking, Looking and Writing, Existing in the Present, in those present tense um, ideas and just sort of that acceptance that I am going to do what I'm going to do 
and I have to do it in the way that's best fits my purpose. Once I figure that out, hopefully, we hope that everyone can figure out their purpose. And then all of those things will die with you. Um, your experiences, the the time that you spent, the things that you saw. You talk a lot about your eyes in the in the beginning too, like the things that you saw, the experiences you had, um, those things will all die with you. And I like that there is writing out there that makes is trying to make that a more habitable space. Um, something that doesn't have to be as scary. Um, and I was wondering along the lines too of the, the equating that with the experience of your father passing away, but just the that idea bumping up against so much collective grief and individual grief and loss. If you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, we've we've all been just living right in it. Um, and the first, it's only the last, really the last essay in the book that was written during the COVID period. And also, you know, in the aftermath of my father's dying, he was 92 and he didn't die from COVID, but he did pass away literally just a couple of weeks before the shutdown. And what that meant is that we were able to be with him in a way that a month later, right, we would not have been able to be with him. And so for me, one of the huge tragedies of the year is not just, uh, not only that so many people died, which is an enormous tragedy that um, is almost hard to bear the burden of thinking about, but that so many people, um, were lost to the world and were alone, right, in that time. So for me, my father's life is a, something to celebrate and, and is a triumph. His death is a tragedy, but it was an ordinary tragedy. It's the one that will come to all of us. And really in a lot of ways, many of the, you know, you could even categorize some of the COVID deaths that way, right, as well, that dying of a virus is something that happens, right, to thousands of people around the world all the time. It's the intensity of that experience, right, that made it, that brought it home, so much got brought home to us, right, in the last year that really brought it home to us. But it seems to me, and my father's death helped me to think about this, that the tragedy of an individual passing out of the world isn't so much the tragedy of that, of that body or that person no longer being there, like for me, his daughter. It's the literal tragedy that, for, that every person carries an entire world inside them, right? And that and the uniqueness of that entire world. And then for every person who dies, that entire world is gone. And so this is something that makes human death in particular, but you know, I, I actually attribute to many animals um, the, uh, the experience of an inner world. Um, but human death in particular, it makes simultaneously absolutely quotidian and ordinary, and also absolutely the loss of everything. 
right, at the same time. And this is, you know, poetry is about living with um, dichotomy and conundrum and holding two ideas in mind at the same time and being able to live with tragedy um, and joy, right, at, this, at the same time. And so for me, celebrating the fact that I am, I represent an entire reality uh, goes hand in hand with understanding that when my body goes, so does that reality. Well, I mean, I think that, I think that we, I think that we did it. <laughs> I think we, I think, I think that we, we went through, uh, we went on a walk and we, and we looked at, we looked at all of those essays and the different spaces in time. And I'm so, I'm so grateful that we got to have this conversation. Um, it, I enjoyed the book so much. And like I said, I've found myself fortunate enough to read a few books this year that made grief and loss feel, um, feel like I, I think I said habitable um, and a place that you could interrogate. Um, and this is definitely one of those books. And I'm so grateful that you have put it out in the world for us. And I'm so grateful that you have received it with such <laughs> and pleasure. It, it gives me a lot of pleasure to know that. Before we go, I did want to ask you uh, one little question um, about whether there was anything you wanted to uplift or anyone whose work that has been filling you up so much of uh, our distractions and attention goes to things that we may not necessarily want to be paying attention to and so if there's anything that has really um filled you up or brought you joy I would love to hear about it well Emily Dickinson always fills me up and brings me joy and my students fill me up and bring me joy um but beyond that I think what I would recommend um to your listeners is there's so much amazing work being published in little magazines around the country right now. And uh, most of these magazines are also online uh, and you can find them. So um, I would start with a magazine like Crazy Horse. I would start um, with a magazine like Diagram, which I think is on entirely online. Um, there are some really great environmental mag journals out there. Terrain is a fantastic one, again, entirely online. And these are visually beautiful spaces as well as spaces where you can just hang out, right? And visit a poem here and a poem there. Um, so that's what I would recommend is that people, is that people reach out. These journals, they represent not the work of 10 years, or five years, like this book is the work of, of five years. They represent the best of what's happening right now in poetry. And if you don't like the poem you just read, that's fine. Just read a different one by a different person, right? It's not all the, all the same person. Yeah. Get, your, get your toes wet and splash around it. I just get so much pleasure and joy from that, from the liveliness of this conversation that's happening out there. Well, thank you so much for that recommendation, Catherine. And thank you again for sharing The Stranger I Become with us and for such a 
lovely, spacious conversation with me today. Today's guest, once again, was Catherine Coles, and you can order your very own copy of The Stranger I Become on walking, looking, and writing at www.skylightbooks.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you so much, Nat. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.